business owners likely will have only one shot to sell a business. Most don't understand what drives value and how buyers look at a business. Until now. Welcome to the How to Sell a Business podcast, where every week we talk to the subject matter experts, advisors, and those around the deal table about how to sell at maximum value. Every business will go to sell one day. It's only a matter of when. We're glad you're here. The podcast starts now. Today I had the opportunity to interview Tom Britt of the Town Post Network. And for two reasons. One, you know, I have seen Tom, you know, throughout uh, pretty much throughout my career. He has been he has been in the publishing and and tech world here in the local community and one of the the big things that I saw with him is he created this community newspaper called the Town Post Network and and I guess I I I have to admit I was surprised that a print publication had lasted so long. And then recently I saw that Tom had sold his own two locations that uh I, that were his I, his original babies. And so I saw that on LinkedIn and I reached out to him and I wanted to to ask him how as a seller how did it work? And then as a franchisee, where does the business create value and how do other franchisees exit well? And as always, Tom was super generous with his time and with his information on, and he certainly he certainly has seen where the puck is going in this in this publishing esque type industry, and I think he's I think he's on to something. So I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tom Britt of the Town Post Network. <laughs> Tom, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, uh, thanks for having me, buddy. So. Before you came on, I gave a high level overview of you and 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 I've known you for a long time. So I guess where I'd like to start is a little background about you and how you got into town post and and, and what you're doing over there. Yeah, so a little background. Um, I started out in publishing back in the late eighties. So this is back when desktop publishing was coming around and the good old um, days. The good old <laughs> waxer days, you had waxers that puts galley type and things together. And my first job out of Ball State, out of college, was working at a typesetting company, which are now extinct. Um, yeah. But that was my first experience introduction into publishing. I worked on magazines at Weimar Typesetting, which is now um, gone. And uh, just fell in love with magazines uh, about... Uh, six years later, so about 2000, 1993, I started my own pre-press company doing magazine design and things. It was called Progressive Publishing. And <clears throat> that business was interesting because it was all about desktop publishing. So democratizing the whole pre-press industry and how magazines were designed, scanners were new, um, you know, high-end printers were new. And so I was just taking advantage and riding that wave. But you know, trying to develop processes and ways we could handle multiple pages for multiple clients. Um, and then in 1995, they, they kept talking about this thing called the Internet. You know, we got on an airplane, it was being AOL disk sitting in my seat. And I was like, what the heck is this? So the more I read about it, the more I heard about it, the more I got on the Internet and started just browsing around back in the early days. Um, the talk was about how it was going to do away with print. And here I am in a company <laughs> that is in the print industry, right? Right. Um, and so I thought, well, you know, how could we leverage this thing called the interweb? And uh, we started building websites and we actually built the first e-commerce site in Indiana. It was a dog supply company. According to iQuest, it was the first e-commerce site in the state of Indiana. And it was so antiquated that when the, the, the customer, the guy that owned the company, we built the yeah. site for he didn't have internet, but he had a fax machine. So we had actually fax him orders online so he could fulfill them and send them out. So uh, anyway, long story short, I I built one site like that. And I was like, this is a lot of work. It's, there's no off-the-shelf stuff. We, we got to figure out a business model to actually monetize this some other way. So we came up with ChannelSeek.com. And ChannelSeek was a .com that was really um, – 
becoming the open source guide of what's being streamed online. So back then, Real Player was the only, well, it was the first, but it was the only one at the time that could stream video and audio over the internet. Use compression on each end and had yeah. a Real Player download. And uh, Mark Cuban had just filed his S1 right. to go public with broadcast.com. And so I thought, man, there could be a need for a TV guide of all this stuff because all this videos out there, nobody has a guide that has everybody's stuff. And that's what Channel Seek was. Um, in the process of doing Channel Seek, I still own my pre-press publishing company. So okay. I had an office in Castleton on New Road. And in one part of the building was ProPub, the publishing company. Right. And then across the hall was our dot-com company. So we had two separate offices, two sets of payroll. Um, I had an office in the Channel Seek side because I had more room to grow. And... Um, in the process of doing Channel Seek and starting to speak at conferences about convergence and internet, television, radio, all converging, right? I had a publishing company, and I knew in the back of my head that print would be a big, big, be a big player in this at some point. And so we started building broadband portals uh, for like Sprint and um, ISP Channel on the West Coast and Cello in Europe. Um, AOL Time Warner had our channel seat guide. So we were building these broadband portals with Comcast, all these guys. And I saw a need for a local portal. I thought that the internet would get more and more localized as more and more content sure. came out there. Um, I saw print as being a vehicle that would stimulate people to go online and maybe make purchases or people would trust print where they did the internet even back then. And so that we use leverage print to get people to do things online. That's how that whole system would work. Right. And so in 2000, I sold the publishing company and the dot com and started consulting. And I thought, you know, I should build my own local portal. I mean, I, I could do that. Sure. It, it, it's not that hard. It actually was harder than I thought. But always um, is. I, did, <laughs> I, I built at Geist.com. So that's where I live. And I, I'll just prototype it in my backyard and just see how it goes. And I launched it in 2003, just a website. And um, about a, nine months later, I started the magazine. And so my my traffic to my website was fairly consistent. I would have, you know, I don't know, maybe 500 to 1,000 unique visitors per week. But when I started the magazine, that's when the whole script flipped because the magazine was something people got in their mailbox. It had the name of Geist sure. at the top. I live in Geist. I want to read what's happening in this Geist magazine. And yeah. that's when everything started to launch for us. So Townpost really started, the embryo started back in 2003, 2004. But it wasn't until 2010 we started licensing what we were doing. Because remember, my background was publishing in the right. system right. in the back office. So I kind of brought that to... How could we do more magazines? How can how can I get Ed to be a, a Tom Britt in his community? And how can I help someone else be the Tom Britt in their community? And so we started licensing what we were doing. And in 2012, we decided, you know, at the time we had like eight licenses going. And we decided, you know, let's turn this into a franchise. Um, it's more equitable for our people in the system. Right. Um, it's more regulated. It's easier to sell down the road. Um, not only franchisees, but franchisor down the road. And so we we made the leap, um, hired a great local attorney named Josh Brown, who's arguably no. the best uh, franchise been, attorney, I think, in the Midwest. He's been on the podcast. There, There's no one better. There's nobody better than Josh. And he was just really, uh, he was a pup back then. I say a pup, but he was getting started to specialize in franchising. Yeah. And we were one of his first clients that really just said, hey, convert us. And it took us a couple of years, uh, but in 16, we converted, we registered as a franchise, we converted everybody over to franchises. And now the Town Post Network is 18 magazines in 18 different communities. Nice. Uh, we have 11 franchisees. And um, I just recently sold my two franchises. I started with my Geist and Fishers, what I've done for 19 years. I, I just recently sold those to two new franchisees. Um, Allison Gatz and uh, Justin Beal. And now I'm the franchise or so I can focus on just franchise sure. development. But that's nice. that's kind of the long story of how I got to where I'm at today. But it all started back in those dot com days. Um, 
in the wild, wild west of the dot com. Well, I when I was I, I've had you on the short list and I and I've <laughs> been I, I've been wrestling with the with the questions because as as we were talking about before we hit record, you know, you 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 think about a paper and and you wonder, you know, with the, with the internet and and email newsletters and so on and so forth, what's the viability of this? And and so I, I I struggled with how am I going to come up with, I mean, with the questions because I'm I'm sitting here going, you know, is there value here? And then all of a <laughs> then all of a sudden I see you're selling you know, you can I continue to see the the press releases about adding new franchisees then I see that you sold that you sold the ones that that I knew you from mm-hmm. and so and so I'm like well there gosh there's got to be something more here so I guess that's where I want to I want to talk to you about is how does the value I guess initially converge with print and digital in in today's world that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> it always I'll, is. <laughs> I'll answer it maybe in a couple different ways, and maybe the course of the conversation will help answer that question. Um, first of all, um, just our print magazines. And I look at gross revenue year over year and the same number of magazines each year. So if, it did, okay. if they started mid-year, I don't even count the revenue. I wait till the next year and we roll them in. Yeah. But just year over year, we've had consistently over the last five years, over 20% growth every year, year over year for five years straight. That's including COVID years. That's not exempting them. That's including the COVID years. Okay. And that's just print. On top of that, we have added more digital services. We're now building websites. We're doing um, SEO for folks. Um, We're doing programmatic advertising, Google advertising management, Local SEO, we're doing a lot of digital services, and that's over and above the print stuff that's already growing year over year exponentially. So um, financially, it is viable. Um, I think what makes us different and what's really helped us is this my prism that I look at things from. Right. So I don't I don't see print as the end all solution to everything. I don't walk into a sales call and say, what size ad do you want? Usually that's the last thing I ask. Right. Yeah. Like I would never come to your office and say, Ed, hey, I'm, you know, let's get the pleasantries out of the way. Okay, what size ad are you thinking about this month? Because really the size of the ad has very little to do with the success of your marketing campaign. It has more to do with all the other things you're doing digitally, socially, other things you're involved in, your own client uh, retention programs, those things all play into how successful you are. So what we do is we come in. And we're more like marketing consultants. We're trying to figure out, you know, we play in a sandbox. Where is everything? Where are all the, where's everything buried in the sandbox? And what, what do we work with? What's worked in the past? Um, are you using QR codes? Are you using couponing? Are you, do you have an app you're trying to get people to download? What's, sure. what's the outcome? What's the measurement of success here? And because of that, I think it's helped us with our print sales just because we're yeah. not looking to just print more paper. We're trying to be more efficient with our paper and then leverage your other assets to make all this stuff work together. And honestly, if you look at it, you know, printing, printing magazines or or even newspapers or anything, printing them, the process of designing them, putting them on rolls of paper, cutting them out, stitching them, putting them in the mail, paying the postage. It's expensive. It's labor intensive. And it's a very high barrier to get into that business. But it also gets the second highest response and retention amongst all advertising mediums, second only to billboards. So if we can do that well and then help them on everything else and make them all sing together, then we can help the client be successful. And it must be working because they wouldn't keep working with us if it didn't work. No, 100 percent. And 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 that and and that kind of makes sense to me where I don't mean kind of, it makes sense to me from the standpoint of, okay, you know, not only do we have this publication, but we also have all of, all of the wraparound services that's going to maximize the, the value surrounding the paper itself. Right. Right. I get that. Right. So, well, one of the things I, I, I guess I, I, I wanted to ask 
is from an avatar standpoint, the people that are getting the newspaper, you know, like like from from where I, where we sit, there are people in our that we're sent, you know, we're constantly sending, you know, different you know stuff to, and and so many people prefer getting paper, prefer the envelope. I can't tell you how many people we've talked to that pull out a file of all of the collateral stuff that we've sent out over the years and they just, and they just keep it. And so there's, so I know that there's those kinds of people, but what surprises me is, and that's where I was going to ask, what's the avatar of that reader for the, for the paper, you know? Right. So the avatars is actually kind of surprising. Um, there's been a lot of research done. There's a national magazine association, which yeah. coincidentally is run by all the big magazine publishing <laughs> no. companies. Okay. So no. imagine that, but <laughs> so you have to kind of take what they say with a little grain of salt. Um, but surprisingly it's, it's my generation. So it's, a, it's the 50, 60, 70 year olds, but also the younger people now have are starting to adopt print more so than even the generation that came before them. Um, and so when we look at the avatar, it's a homeowner. So we only mail to homeowners yep. and it's business owners in these local communities. And so if you own a home, like I live in Fishers, when I get the Fishers magazine and it has Fishers at the top and it's got a picture of somebody on the front that I probably need to know who they are. And I start scrolling through those ads. It becomes, it becomes very obvious that I am engaged in that. I can't text and read a magazine. I can't watch television and read a magazine. Oh. So I can't multitask. Good point. And it's also a, a, some nice downtime from my screen. So that's why people like print publications. It is something they don't have to scroll on their iPad or Kindle or something to read. Right. So I think it's people who I think digital and the, the oversaturation of digital in all of our lives is actually making print a little more unique and a little more special because yeah. you don't get as much of it as you used to get. Yeah. But secondly, it's a much more intimate conversation with somebody in a print publication than it is on something you're going to see online. Yeah. People, will, people will remember and reflect and take action on something they've seen in a magazine 10 times more often than they would on something they've only seen online. Real. Just because if it's tangible, sure. it must be real, right? Yeah. No, no, I get that. So well, that, I think it works. Well, and the, it's it's funny you say that because I was sitting there thinking about the – you know, who I, I was thinking about it wrong, actually, because I'm for someone to to, you know, be 10 times more likely to take action. That's surprising because my my one of my next questions were, look, you're competing. You know, you got your Facebook groups, you've got uh, next door, you've got all these all these, you know, community whatever you, online groups and i'm sitting here going well that has to detract from the value but when in fact i think it does just the opposite that people are going to the magazine and and it actually amplifies rather than detracts so yeah it does make sense and, and the way i like to say that another way of saying it is that People like to have things curated for them and packaged and presented in a nice way. Yeah, it, it's like, for example, and here locally, um, I'll use an example: Angela Buckman, who was a weather lady, weather person, uh, meteorologist on a local television station. I have an app on my phone called Weatherbug. Okay, I can see the weather it instantaneously yeah. at any time of the day, day and night. I can get current temperature, dew point. Sunset, sunrise, moon, all that stuff, right? Yep. But I will sit and listen to Angela Buckman curate the weather for me and package it differently than my weather app. And I sit and I enjoy that. Now, why do I like that? It's because it, it's intent. It's intentional curation of content. And we're doing nothing different in print. We're finding stories. We're getting stories about local businesses coming to town, a new restaurant that just opened up, a brewery that's going to open here in the yard. All of a sudden, we go interview them. We get pictures. We kind of tell their story in four to five hundred words. We put it on social media. We put it in the magazine. 
People enjoy ingesting curated content that was designed specifically just for them. And I, I don't think that's ever going to go away. And actually, I would argue yeah. that because there is so much, uh, and, you know, all this other data out there, uh, you mentioned Nextdoor, yeah, Facebook, yeah. all these groups, that people like to stop every once in a while and say, okay, just curate something for me and entertain sure. me for a minute. <laughs> I'm done. 100%. 100%. And, and, and I get that. And, and that's kind of where my next question is. Is I you know I hear that and if I'm if I'm the if I'm looking at buying this type of business I'm going oh geez you know who writes these stories how do how do I deliver how do I deliver a a product that you know you know no one no one wants to read you know read an article full of typos no one wants to you know read a grammatically inferior piece of content. So mm -hmm. I guess that's the first thing is, you know, what, if you talk about the personnel structure, you know, how does that work now? I, and I, and that's my first question, but coupled with it mm -hmm. is I think we're, we're seeing that the, the creative community is only increasing. I think there's more people available to write your articles mm -hmm. than, than some of the, you know, some of the restaurants and, and some of the, the, the people, the businesses that are facing, you know, trying to hire people. So that's yeah. my question is, so tell me about how, how, how personnel works in this type of business. It's a great question. And actually it's probably one of our strengths of our network and the way town post is set up. We are a, a true turnkey franchise, which means that let's say um, Ed buys a franchise and he wants to do a magazine and yep. Timbuktu. Okay. Well, Ed comes in and gets trained on our cloud-based system. We train you on how to onboard freelance writers and photographers. And we actually take care of helping you get them into the system so you can make them assignments. We already have our own designers on staff. We've got our own editors on staff, our own web people on staff that make all the web updates. We even do social media on anything that you put in your magazine it goes through our whole turnkey system. So Ed and the franchisee is the salesperson. They're the mayor. They're the face of that community. And yep. so their job is to go out and do the networking, do the sales, um, do, you know, find out what stories need to be written and then assign it in the system and let our writers, photographers do that. And we even go as far as to actually do all your invoicing for you. So when your magazine's ready to go, uh, we do the invoicing for you. We collect all your payments for you. We pay all your bills, including printing, postage, writers, photographers, everybody. And then what we do is once a month, we net out to you how much you made based on your collections and what mm -hmm. you sold and what we had to spend on your behalf for the previous month. So it's a complete turnkey system. So when you say personnel, it's really just you. Um, we have a couple uh, franchisees that do mm -hmm. have um, a spouse that assists them. Um, one in um, Northern Indiana, his spouse and he are basically partners. He's the sales guy and she does all the operations. I have getting things in our system and assigning writers and photographers. They work really well as a tag team. But most of our franchisees are just solo entrepreneurs. They work from home. Um, their wife or husband does something else. And um, with our back office, we provide all the systems and people sure. support they need. So they're not really hiring anybody. I always tell people um, it's just you and your home office and a laptop and you will be yeah. just fine. So and that's kind of how the personnel works. Um, it's, it's, it is a true turnkey franchise system. Right. No, no, You're I, not, you don't have to hire anybody. We've already got them on staff and you just uh, pay your production fees and that's it. But I think it, isn't the industry as a whole going that way that they're, you know, that they are, you know, freelancing, you know, you know, uh, I know Forbes does it, you know, where they're, they're looking for contributors yeah. and then they compile all this together. And that's, that's how they do, how they do it. Um, the difference yeah. in yours is, you know, you, you're sell you're selling your, your, the, the mechanics of the financial side is, is advertising, right? Yeah. Right. And, and to your point, there are a lot of publications out there who have moved to this model, whether they had to or they just financially couldn't keep supporting sure. full time writers and photographers anymore. 
Um, we started out that way. Uh, we try to stay as lean as possible. And right. um, our system is developed so that we can onboard freelancers that maybe write one story a month. We've had some that write 10 or 12 stories a month across our whole network. Yeah. The nice thing about writing is you can do a phone interview and you could be anywhere when you do the interview. Right. On a phone or you know, Zoom or whatever. Just like us right now. Exactly. I don't even know where you're at. I don't care. Right. Because uh, we're having this conversation and I can do that interview. Um, so, you know, we, we've leveraged that for the existence of our model um, during COVID. Obviously, that we were already developed and designed that way. So COVID was sure. easy for us to get through. The only hard part for us is we had a a new office in Fishers we just moved into and our staff was all excited to have, you know, we have a community pool where we're at and we have a parking garage in downtown. We're right across the street from a brewery. It's like, this is living life for a, <laughs> a youngster and uh, COVID shutdown made us all go home, but you know, yeah. everything's already in the cloud. Um, right. So we just worked from home in the cloud. It was really just no different. We just missed out on the social aspect of it. Yeah. So when you think about you know, who are the buyers of this type of business and, and what are they, what are they looking for? I, I, I assume it's, you know, the, the backdrop of every entrepreneur is, is freedom, you know, the freedom to do mm -hmm. everything. But, but besides that, what do, there has to be more and there has to be, and I know, I know that you have, you have looked at, you know, all kinds of different buyers. And I know you have a horror story to share with us on the institutional side, but, <laughs> but I mean, how, what, is there any consistency? So if I'm, if I'm a, uh, I own, you know, a, a paper of some sort, how do I, what, do, and what do I look for in that type of buyer? Um, so we have a couple, I guess, kind of buyer profile. So, okay. And so let's look at one, and that would be more of like a, a new franchise territory. So Ed wants to do Timbuktu.com or Timbuktu Magazine, and there is no Timbuktu Magazine. He's going to start it from scratch, and we're going to get this thing trained, get him off the ground, and launch his first magazine in four months. Um, that buyer profile is generally um, somebody in their late 40s, early 50s. They have a lot of B2B sales experience. Not necessarily magazine or even print or even, you know, radio or television media, but just good B2B sales um, ethics and tactics. Um, one of our top sales reps uh, for a couple of years or top franchisees uh, was in pharmaceutical sales. And so, you know, they're used to cold calling and trying to get appointments and then trying to go in and close them on the appointment and walk out and build the relationship with that client. So people that are that are really good salespeople, they have enough experience where they feel confident in their capabilities. They don't have a trouble getting in front of anybody and talking about their business and asking about how they're doing um, and developing that relationship. Those people are really good candidates for us because what we can offer them is a turnkey franchise system that they're going to own their territory. They're going to own their magazine. Yeah. And the only thing we get out of it when they sell it down the road is $10,000 to transfer it to somebody else, but they keep the net proceeds of that franchise that franchise territory. So if you work for yourself, if you want to work for yourself, have a little more flexibility, have a quality of life, um, be able to work um, from home, be closer to your kids, your family. Maybe you're a sales rep that's been on the road a lot and you're just tired of traveling. You just want to do something in your backyard. Um, this is a great profile yeah. for you. The second profile, um, the second type of purchase would be um, somebody who is looking to buy an existing territory. So the ones that I just sold were existing territories. They were they weren't corporate owned because we owned them separately from Town Post, but they were original too. Um, those profiles, uh, one of them was in real estate, and the other one had been the executive director of a uh, in, of a startup nonprofit that was founded here in the city that she bought. Okay. Um, and I think, you know, nonprofit, you're selling sponsorships, you're working with sponsors, you're, you're trying to do a lot, with not a lot of people and not a lot of uh, resources, um, really good networking on the real estate side. Again, networking, working your contacts, staying in touch with people, follow ups, um, you know, being there when they're ready to sell that after five years, after you sold them the house five years ago. So 
Yeah. I think a, a person buying a territory, um, we've got a couple other territories kind of in play a little bit that people are talking about wanting to maybe sell or um, some buyers trying to inquire about if they'd be willing to sell. Uh, but they all kind of fit that persona. They're okay. Okay. that 45 to 50 year old um, yep. got some experience under the belt and they're ready, ready to own something of their own and spend the next 10 years building something they can exit on someday. <sighs> And that brings us to the next buyer that comes through the door. So the next buyer says, "Okay, what am I buying?" My and in your case, you guys are you guys are a little bit different. I I, I know you well enough to like you know good organization. I, no one I'm no one in this community sweats that. But if mm-hmm. I'm if I'm looking at at this, I'm saying, "All right, what am I buying?" You because you control the process, you control the, you know all the people. You control my, whether I live or die, right? So, uh, so, so if I'm selling something now, I've got a now I've got personal relationships with every with all these people in the community. Now, now I'm I'm almost like the, you know, like my doctor that just retired. He has, you know, he has all this personal goodwill with all these people. How do I get it to the next person? So I, I guess that's that's what I wanted to kind of bring around is all right i i i see the value of the earning stream of of what you're selling Mm -hmm. i'm just i just worry about it from a risk standpoint if i'm the new buyer so how does that work so a new buyer meaning like the current territories i just sold right right okay Uh so in, in that example um what they bought were the existing contracts that we already have so most advertisers we're a monthly magazine okay most advertisers are doing more than one month a year. They do 12 months a year, six months a year. Okay. Uh, most of those were contracts that we've had for multiple years. Um, in Geist, for example, where I started, um, I had two advertisers who had been with me since the very first issue I did in 2004. So nice. it's so who, so who are they? Buying, who are they? Yeah. Yeah. But what they're buying is that name, that recognition that the community has with the brand in the community. But they're also buying relationships and companies that have committed to this for multiple years. And they're buying the fact that they're probably going to continue with those relationships going yeah. forward. As long as they're, you know, they don't go and mess something up, they can go sure. in and, no, no. and keep that going. And so that's kind of what they're buying. It's, yeah. it's also they're buying some uh, as with the existing territories they are buying some assurances that this thing is going to be here for a while. No, no, um, I totally get know, that. Yeah. I mean, prep prices, paper, you know, there's been lots of crises in, in printing. We all know about paper shortages and uh, there's a paper mill in Europe that shut down and during COVID and through the whole thing in a tailspin during COVID. Right. And we survived all that. Now paper is coming back and the pricing is staying about the same, but start it's going to go back down again. Um, and so that stability, stability in that market, we've weathered that already. We already weathered two recessions, yeah, um, a pretty big one in 08, 09. So we've kind of weathered those storms and we're still here and we're still growing at a 20 yeah. percent clip every year. And I think that's what they're buying into is I, yeah. I want to do something that I own. But I also want to know I can do this for 10 years and maybe exit and make more money on it and still monetize it during that 10 year period. Yeah. So, so what I heard is, look, you're, you're, you're buying recurring revenue. You're buying, you're buying a dependence on the results that the paper itself gets you as part of this whole process. Mm -hmm. All right. And so, and so if I'm, and we know who the buyer is. So now the buyer is between 45 and 55, ready to put the hammer down and, and make a good run for the next the next decade. So where do I find the money to to buy, you know, basically uh, one ginormous intangible asset? <laughs> well, um, so in the existing territories, um, they got their own financing lined up. Um, they were able to use the financials and the historical data. Um, we did get a valuation done um, by a professional company that does business valuations. And one of the uh, one of the industries, at least the Midwest leading valuation experts, gave us a valuation. So based upon that valuation, taxes, history, 
the banks were very, um, yeah, you know, it's a tough market, but they gave them the money for it. Yeah. When you're talking about new franchise territory, our our new franchise rate is thirty five thousand per territory. That's the two thousand twenty three rate that could go up, but they're listening to this um, later. Um, most of those people are they have that money kind of set aside. Yeah. Um, I think our FDD asked them to have about fifty thousand of liquid assets, including the thirty five they're going to pay us, just to help sure. them get through that first yeah. three to four months as cash flows pick up. But that's that's about what they need on the financial side. So when you go to resale, to resell or go through the resale process, what and again, the avatar remains the same or does the financial picture of that buyer change? Um, to resell a territory. So we've only had um, four territories resell. OK, um, we had actually five. Two were corporate owned that we resold to new franchisees. Um, my two, and there was another territory that we had a, a franchisee who had some health issues that came upon him unexpectedly. And we did an asset, he did a sale to um, somebody who's already in our net worth. So somebody was already working with sure. us and they bought it and they're now running that territory. Um, I think the, if you had to look at an avatar or try to describe them, what we found so far, and this is again, this is five transactions over the last um, seven years. Most of these buyers are people who live in these communities, and there are people that we already knew or already had some kind of relationship or knowledge of Town Post. So these are people who worked with us. One of them was an advertiser who had worked with us and bought ads, ended up buying a territory. Um, one was a photographer who had done some freelance work for us. Nice. Owned his own photography studio, but just really had a passion for the territory that he was photographing and said, well, what would it cost if I just bought this? And and so they're usually people that we know. Now, you know, as we get bigger, you know, we got 18 now, we got a couple on the horizon. But if we have, you know, 50 to 100 franchises, I'm sure that's going to change a bit because then the brand's going to sure. carry a little more swagger sure. and I you're going to have a little broader net. And you probably would get more institutional type buyers. So people coming through brokerages or um, uh, some, some kind of a, a middle person, um, that would sure. be probably more apropos. But right now, we're just kind of dealing in Indiana and Kentucky. It's very contained. And those buyers are right in our backyard. We're probably mailing to them now. I get it. In fact, that's funny you say that because uh, there was a recent study that you know businesses. I, I want to say it's six hundred thousand in revenue and below. No, I, I take that back. It's a million dollars in revenue and below. The buyer is within ten miles of that business, ten or twenty miles. So, mm -hmm. so you're right. I mean, regardless of and, and in this and the the study that I'm quoting, I mean we're talking. You know, it, industry agnostic. It's it's that's that way, just based yeah. on revenue. Yeah, I'll tell you a funny story um, about selling guys and fishers. The two I just sold. Um, I put a listing on Biz Buy Sell myself. I wrote it. Yeah, we had the valuation done. We 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 knew what we wanted to put and what we wanted to ask for. We put on BizBuySell dot com, which if you don't know, that's a national website. You can list. Um, Companies to sell, and you also can go on there and buy companies on there. Um, the listing I put on there was a 90-day listing. I did not want to renew it. I thought I'm going to give it 90 days and to see what happens. So I listed on Biz Buy Sell. Um, two weeks into it, no one inquired about it at all. So then the third week, I put a listing. I shared the listing on my LinkedIn profile, thinking that other business people on LinkedIn might see it and inquire about it. I got several people that messaged me that said, hey, I can't afford to buy it, but I, I'd love to work for you. I want to write for you or I could do sales for you if you want to decide to keep them. So I had a lot of interest, but they weren't buyers. They were just like yeah. people who were interested sure. in maybe helping out, which is great. That went on for a couple of weeks and really nothing came out of it. Finally, the beginning of week five, I shared it on my Facebook profile. Now, on yep. Facebook, I've got about 5,000 uh, friends. friends, right? All of them. All of them are friends. We're all <laughs> Christmas cards, 5,000 every year. Um, I put on Facebook, 
And literally within three days, I had four people wanting to buy the magazines in three days. Now, the reason I tell you that is because we started on the process and some new people came in, some other people kind of opted out. This went on for about a month, but I closed on Fisher's. And I closed the day before my 90 day um, listing mm. was expired. So nice. not only did I sell them and list them on biz by sell, but actually it was Facebook that actually sold them. And not only did I get them sold, but I had them closed all within that 90 day period. That's awesome. And good for you. I mean, as, as, as we've talked, I mean, it's it, in our world, it tends to be closer to a year to get that done. And I expected um, that to be honest with you, you know, and, but good, good on you. And, you know, it's funny, the one of the I, I had a an expert about selling health clubs and and one of his techniques is that he put a, he, lo- he looked at who who comes to the gyms the most. All right. The, the 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 hardcore people. And he sends him a letter and says, look, you know, I'm, this thing's going great. I'm looking at, at uh, perhaps taking on an investor. Would you be interested in? Yeah. And that was, and that was his hook. And that's yeah. how he got these people. He's like, yeah, you know what? You know, have you ever thought about owning your own? Oh, absolutely. And th- that's how, that's how he, he did it. And, and good for him. So that. Yeah. yeah you on. always, yeah, I think people that are closer to it are the best you know, and the Agreed. most obvious candidates yeah. to buy. Um, yeah. As we start growing and we start going national, you know, we are licensed in 42 states right now. We're looking to go beyond Indiana, Kentucky. We're getting ready to launch Florida here this fall. Nice. Uh, our first one in Florida. So as we start expanding, that avatar is going to change. And we're going to try to, you know, that's kind of the, the million dollar question is what's the perfect candidate? What are they doing now? What's their profile? Right. Yeah. And if we can find more people like them and sell more franchises, that makes town posts even more successful. Yeah, I agree. Well, I'm bumping up on time and I, I want to be sensitive to, to sure. the time I, I promised you. So, <laughs> so I'm just, I'm curious to know, you know, as, as you move forward, I, I, one of the things I, I really appreciate, appreciate about you is that you are thinking about value. You are thinking mm-hmm. about exits, you're a business owner and you're, and you're doing the same for for your franchisees. So I guess that's where I I'm looking to you to explain to me on on the value as you're I know I know you're pitching an earning stream, but there has to be a saleable asset at the end of whoever's ownership journey. And I guess I just want to talk a little bit about how are you how are you positioning those franchisees that they have a saleable asset? You know what I mean? Yeah. So the, there's there's really two things that we can do to impact their sale price, right? So the one is develop strong systems and training systems so that a potential buyer down the road feels comfortable that when they buy this asset from one of our franchisees, that Tom and Town Post is going to be there to take care of them in perpetuity. Yep. So that's one piece of it. The second piece is building a strong town post brand that people want to feel like they want to be a part of. Um, you know, McDonald's doesn't sell hamburgers. They sell their brand, right? Yep. Town post wants to be able to sell that brand to people say, no, yeah, these guys get to work from home. I see them in the golf tournaments. Um, they have a great quality of life. They're making great money, but they love what they're doing and they're building value in something that, is going to be worth something down the road when we're ready to exit. So those are really the only two levers that we can yeah. control. And those are some, some things that we are spending a lot of time on um, as we speak. I mean, one of the reasons I sold the two franchises I had was to spend more time on getting town post systems yeah. in place, getting training better and, and more memorialized so I can run you through a script and you know how to do this versus having to do so much one-on-one training with everybody. So that's, that's what they're buying into. Um, yeah. And I'm hoping as, as we go down that path, um, we're going to find more people that just want to join town posts that are already doing magazines. I mean, if you think about it, if you were doing Timbuktu magazine out of your house right now on your own, uh, you're negotiating your printing. You're one guy buying printing from your printer. You're the last guy the printer wants to hear from that month because okay. you're going to pay more. Believe me, 
you probably have an in-law doing the editing. You got your nephew or your son doing the website. You got somebody else doing social media. You're trying to do sales, but you're also having to do the billing yourself and QuickBooks and people are behind, but you're so busy trying to bill, you can't catch up on the receivables. It's it's hard. It's very hard. It's a very lonely business. So what we're doing now is we're actually talking to a lot of people who are in that situation that want to just become a friend, one of our franchisees. And basically we convert them into a town post franchisee. And now they not only know our systems, we take care of all their back office for them. So their nephew or their neighbor can now go do something else. But we also give them economies of scale. We also give them a better exit because who wouldn't rather buy a franchise of Timbuktu magazine from town post than a magazine from Ed called Timbuktu. And Ed wants to go to Florida and he's not here to answer my questions because he's in Florida now. I got it. Well, that, so that's no, kind of that, the, the one that we're actually talking. We've got a couple of magazines we're in discussions with now. Um, there's a whole vein of these types of publications out there, and we're just starting to make headway now. But I'm hoping by the end of the year, we'll have a couple announcements about a couple we're onboarding nice. um, in some other states that we can convert into franchises. Well, I always believe, you know, I always believe, you know, growth through acquisition is 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 the the quickest way to to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, to build brand. So that's awesome. Well, I at the very end of every interview, I always ask, you know, if you had one piece of advice to give listeners that would have the most immediate impact on their on their business and as it relates to an exit, what would it be? Um, the one thing I would recommend is just getting always having your hands and your mind around your numbers. And keeping a close eye on the numbers that matter the most to a potential buyer down the road. I see. I, I think I think a lot of people, entrepreneur, I'm gonna speak from entrepreneurs, that's what I am. I, I built this business from nothing and here we are, um, you know, where we are today. Um in every entrepreneur's journey, you start out with this great idea, and then you try to do a proof of concept, and then you start monetizing it, and you think, oh my gosh. I think I can make this work. People will pay me money to do this idea. And then you go to the next stage. You start trying to grow and make more money by making the idea better and bigger and a broader footprint. And I think at some point in that journey, it usually happens after a little the fatigue starting to set in because you start realizing it's harder to grow than you thought or I'm starting right. to lose part of this market because somebody else started up and I got I got to pivot now and do something a little different. But at some point in that journey, you have to stop and say, you know what? I'm going to have to sell this someday. And nobody's going to buy this for me because I'm the center of it. I was the idea guy and I got it off the ground, but I can't get this plane above 10,000 feet. And nobody's going to buy a plane that only goes 10,000 feet tall. So when you start paying attention to the numbers and start looking at your books and start looking at them from the eyes of not just how well you're doing, but what a potential buyer would look at those books nice. as and say, I want to buy this. Um, that's when you start, I think, start really adding some value to your business. And you realize that you need to be detachable. You, a business will not, if a business won't survive without you, you're in trouble. You have to make it survivable without you. You got to get systems in place, people in place that are key people. And you have to build it so that you can unplug yourself someday and, Go into somebody else's garage and work, and I think that's that's a that's my only yeah. recommendation yeah. I would give to anybody. And to be honest with you, Ed, I'm in that position right now. I mean, now that I've got Town Post as my full time gig, and I'm focused on franchising, and we've got a digital thing we're spinning off. Now that I'm focused on that, this is my top of mind every day. Is how am I going to build this yeah. for my exit someday? Sure. And and you just have to be always, always, always thinking about where's the back door on this thing. If you don't know where it's at, clear the clutter so you can find it because you need to be able to do that at any given time. You just never know when the offer is going to come around either. I mean, 100%. when I learned in my, in my dot com days, all these companies are out there killing it and going for things. And and then I'd meet with them one day and the next day they'd sold out. And I'm like, what the hell happened? You never told me you're going to sell out. And, well, this guy approached me a week ago and. Made us an offer yeah. we couldn't refuse, you know? You just yeah. never know. And, and that's what we do. I mean, it's like, you, you know, when we do valuation work, it's like, look, you know, you never, it 
you never know when someone's going to show up at your doorstep with with an offer. So, uh, knowing understanding what creates value in your business, at least at least you're in a position to you know to understand whether or not you need to take the next step and figure out who's going to co- come along and be your deal team. Right. right. Yes. Yeah, so, what's the best way we can connect with you? Well, yeah. So, um, you know, townpost t o w n e p o s t dot com is our public site. We also have a franchising site, franchising.townpost.com has more information about how the franchising process works, what territories are available, um, key areas we're looking at um, here in the Midwest. Um, those are the two best ways to get a hold of me. Um, I also, you know, my phone number is on those sites as well. So what I recommend for people to do either text me and just say, Hey, you know, can you give me 30 minutes and just do a phone chat? Um, I always tell people that are looking to buy a franchise or maybe looking to buy one of our existing territories or even looking to convert their franchise or their business into our franchise system is I'd much rather talk you out of it than talk you into it. Amen um, to that. You know, I, so I, that's, that'd be my recommendations. Reach okay. out to me through text or email and that'd be the best way. Got it. Well, I'll have all of your contact information and all of the places that they can find you. <laughs> so Tom, Hey, thanks so much for, for hanging out with me. It, you know, it's, it's been, it's been too long. It's been too long since we got to visit. So I'm, it I'm is our, our paths finally crossed again. It's been great. <laughs> right on. Well, I'm certain, I'm certain the the listeners will have gotten a lot of value out of this. So I, I can't thank you enough. I hope so. Yeah, you're welcome. All right. We'll be seeing you soon. All right, my man. See you, Tom. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on the How to Sell Your Business podcast. If you want more episodes packed with strategies to help sell your business for the maximum value, visit howtosellabusinesspodcast.com for tips and best practices to make your exit life-changing. Better yet, subscribe now so you never miss future episodes. This program is copyrighted by MISO Inc. All rights reserved.